happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, October 30th, 2019. This is episode 153. This is our Halloween Eve episode, so I don't know if we'll be a little creepier than normal. You know, we always try to shock and scare our audience with the most extreme headlines from security and the tech correction. Actually, we don't. But what, what are we going to do here, Jason, if this isn't about scaring people uh, off their screen, as it were, as if we could do that? Well, hey, Wes, before we get started, though, who, who are you? I don't even know who you are. Oh, yeah. See, I'm just my mind. My mind is not working as much as it is as, as it has been lately. I may just say random things. So I am Wes Fryer coming to you from Oklahoma City, where my wife decorates our dining room, which is the place where we have the best overhead light. So that is why I'm here. And I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at Cassidy School, also teaching fifth and sixth grade media and digital literacy. And we are wrapping up our first trimester and I have four more classes with one one set of classes. I see my kids every other day and uh, three more with the others. So next week is the end of the trimester. My how time flies. And Dr. Neifer, how about yourself? I've heard rumors of you know, ed tech guru wizardry north of uh, the Mason-Dixon line. That's just the uh, last thing I heard. Well, it's funny you should say that because there was a time a couple of years ago where uh, someone answered our main line and they asked for high tech online guy. And they were like, are you talking about Jason Neifers? He said, oh, yeah, that's him. So apparently I'm high tech online guy. But my day job is I am the assistant director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus where we serve students in a variety of programs to almost 400 institutions across the state of Montana. And um, when I'm not doing that, I, too, like to think about technology and how it makes our lives better and how we can better engage technology to make sure we're squeezing every bit of juice out of that. But that's me and you're you. What is this show? Well, we are going to talk about the week's headlines in technology and analyze them through an educational lens and always end the show by sharing a few geeks of the week, which may or may not have an educational purpose, but are bound to be something, you know, worth checking out. So that's us. Where should we begin tonight? Well, lots of interesting stuff going on. I know that there is information at minimum about uh, Apple stuff, some Google updates, some Chrome OS stuff, but I think that we should start off with the many headlines that have happened in the past four or five days regarding what we loosely refer to as the tech correction, which is this notion that ever since around 2015, we have felt the need, I think, to reconsider where technology plugs in our larger culture. And so I'll start with maybe the, the today's headline that we can work our way backwards, a Twitter announced today that they will not be accepting political ads in their service starting in November. So that would be Friday. From that moment on, Twitter will no longer accept political ads. That's political ads of any form. And what's interesting about this is the amount of, of uh, media. Uh, in fact, I received several notifications on my smartwatch today, uh, which means maybe um, I, I need to tone down the notifications on there. But uh, the notion that uh, the CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, said that they're just not able to parse the issues regarding political ads. And more importantly, um, it's not a huge percentage of their business. And so I guess I'd start with, Wes, um, is this is this a, a development that you support? Where are you at on the social media ad spectrum? I think it is a fantastic move by Twitter. I hope Facebook uh, follows suit. I actually just retweeted that and, uh, yeah, did a shout out to good old Jack Dorsey at Jack, uh, and said, you know, this, this was a good move. The reason I think it's a good move is because we saw dramatic effects from, and still are from social media in terms of, um, the ways in which things move from social media into mainstream media and the ways in which messages were weaponized. And we also have had, you know, robots and algorithms play a tremendous role in shaping the things that people see uh, and the messages that are, are basically on our, our radar screens, our mental and visual radar screens each each uh, week. So I think it will probably be a challenge for them to still do this because he said in that post, it's a long thread, they're also going to look at issue advertising. And so 
Um, things can still be retweeted and shared, but people aren't just going to be able to pay for the views. It has to be more organic. So it's not an end as far as speech, but in terms of paid speech or, or, you know, the ability to, you know, use, use money to, to push things onto people's screens. I, I think it's an, an excellent move. And, you know, Facebook actually is the bigger, you know, player in this field in terms of the number of eyeballs, I think. I mean, there are a lot of folks on Twitter and certainly our current chief executive in the United States has, in a, I think, not a real positive way, elevated, you know, the use of Twitter for political messages. But most uh, adults who are voters, I would say, more tend to be on Facebook than tend to be on Twitter. So it'll be interesting to see if Facebook does do anything with this. I think we may talk about some of those other articles as far as Zuckerberg and his testimony before Congress. He's kind of doubling down, trying to just say, hey, people need to decide on their own what, you know, is, is valid speech, et cetera. But I think it's I think it's great. What What is your view of this decision? Well, I mean, I think it highlights the the other piece of news regarding this is the fact that uh, Facebook has announced that they are not going to pull down political ads. And that has really unleashed a firestorm in the last seven days of, of kind of one ups personship that I think is a really uh, kind of interesting phenomenon. I was made aware of a lot of the issues and I, unfortunately I couldn't find the article, but this morning's uh, morning edition on NPR uh, dove deeply into the problematic situation that Facebook is facing right now. They have said that they will not pull down political ads, or I'm sorry, they will not vet political ads and pull down ones that are proven to be misleading or otherwise uh, uh, divorce of the truth. And at that point, that sparked off um, other groups. And this is after uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook's testimony to Congress last week, in which he was raked over the coals. Um, it seems like every successive time he goes to Congress, his performance gets worse and worse. And uh, members of Congress are being more and more emboldened to do interesting things to call out Facebook on things they find to be problematic. But apparently there was a fake ad that a political action group put out last week that spliced together video that showed Lindsey Graham in favor of the Green New Deal. That's the um, uh, the proposal by progressive Democrats uh, to you know essentially invest heavily into green technologies in an attempt to stay off climate change. Um, and, and I think within five years, right? Switch right, off yeah. fuels, isn't that what they're trying yeah, to do? Yeah, what extraordinary action. You know, big big policy uh, uh, garnered a lot of debate and some controversy. But that ad was ultimately pulled down, and the line that uh, Facebook said it was that it wasn't a politician. So a California politician filed for office, someone that filed for office, and then tried to put up a different ad to try to, to point out the difficult lines that Facebook is doing. And then now Facebook is saying that you can't become a political candidate just to like, in, you know, in Montana, you can file for the House or Senate, you know, for I think it's 150 bucks is the fee to do that. So anyone can become a political candidate. It's not hard to do so. If you're a U.S. citizen and have lived in, in your location based on local rules, sometimes as, as uh, soon as 90 days. So there's, there's very little bar there, right. To, to become a political candidate. And now Facebook is, is that's their rule. They have to judge who is a serious political candidate and who perhaps is a candidate that's filing just to get the right to put false things on Facebook. So, you know, I, I, I agree. I think Twitter's wisdom was, was extraordinary here. I, I, they are not in a position. I think we're not really broadly in a position to, to, to talk about what advertising means in context of social media. So rather than deal with it, just ban political ads for now until we can figure out some middle ground here that would inspire this. And let's be clear. A lot of the uh, shenanigans that the Internet uh, uh, Research Agency, the organization in Russia responsible for a lot of 2016 election shenanigans, they didn't use paid advertising. They just used fake and dummy accounts, um, created some extraordinary havoc across social media. So it's not a permanent solution or even a, a, a solution that's rid of, of, of majority of the problem, but it's the right decision. And I applaud Twitter um, not always known for their great strategic decisions in, you know, their 15 years of existence, but I applaud Twitter for making what I think is a great decision to kind of stay out of this for now. 
I want to actually read a couple of the tweets in Jack Dorsey's thread, um, which, by the way, Twitter threads, I think, are fantastic. And if you're using Twitter, being able to, to have a tweet and then you reply to that tweet so that when people see that, you know, they can see this conversation is one of the things Twitter gets, you know, criticized for is, oh, it's only, you know, it's moved from 140 to 240 characters. But you, there's just not enough, you know, space to be able to really make an articulate uh, position. And, and this is not true, especially with Twitter threads. So here's here are three of the ones that he that he wrote. He says, this is Jack Dorsey, founder and CEO of Twitter. Internet political ads present entirely new challenges to civic discourse. Machine learning based optimization of messaging and micro targeting, unchecked misleading information and deep fakes, all at increasing velocity, sophistication and overwhelming scale. Okay, that right there is absolutely right on target. And he goes on, these challenges will affect all internet communication, not just political ads. Best to focus our efforts on the root problems without the additional burden and complexity taking money brings. Trying to fix both means fixing neither well and harms our credibility. For instance, it's not credible for us to say, quote, we're working hard to stop people from gaming our systems to spread misleading info. But if somebody pays us to target and force people to see their political ad, well, they can say whatever they want. And so, you know, he goes on uh, for several more, you know, tweets. But I, I think that is spot on. We've talked on the show at several times about, you know, the weaponization of social media. And uh, I've done a shout out before to the smarter every what is it? Smarter Every Day. Uh, Destin is his name. He's an engineer that has a, a great YouTube channel and the series that he did on uh, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Um, you know, I didn't use I don't know. I'm teaching fifth and sixth graders. So it's, it seems like it may be a little more high school to be able to get into uh, some of this. Uh, we've, we've talked more about advertising and the way in which, you know, advertising is trying to hack our brains and being aware of that and, and becoming more savvy and media literate. But anyway, I, I would love to, you know, at some point teach a class where we're, we're, we're using those videos. And I think uh, Dorsey's p- points are spot on here. So I'm, I'm thrilled because honestly, I'm, Surprised. I, I thought in the name of money and, you know, taking in advertising, we wouldn't see meaningful change. It's also significant to see this isn't a regulatory, you know, forced change, right? And, and maybe this isn't going to be nirvana, but because we haven't had any substantial changes in the regulatory regime since the 2016 U.S. presidential elections, you know, it's going to be incumbent upon the platforms to self-regulate. I think because we're not going to see political action that's that's going to I think meaningfully change this. At least that's my you know armchair quarterbacking of what I think is is happening. So anyway, big big headline, great thing to discuss with students, right? Uh, awesome thing to talk about as far as political speech. You know why can you know Twitter do this? Oh, they're not the government, right? They don't have the same kinds of burdens. You know, because they're a private company in terms of the rules. Similarly, and it's not, you know, going gangbusters, but um, there is a, oh gosh, I'm going to blank on the name. There's a a social network, um, (laughs) which is not being used widely, but it is a um, federated system. I'll have to, the the name will come to me and I'll have to look it up here in a minute. But anyway, Germany, you know, they've got very stringent rules about the use of the word Nazi and other, you know, other kinds of political speech. And, and so, you know, companies and, and groups that are not government groups for the United States, for instance, are not subject to the same kinds of rules and laws. And so anyway, I think they're striking a nice compromise because they're not trying to say they're going to block all political speech. What they're saying is you can't pay to, you know, raise yourself in the feet. Were you thinking of Mastodon? Thank you very much. Mastodon is not something lots and lots of people are on, but like email, email's federated, right? So anybody can set up an email server. It uses standards. And, you know, if you're doing malicious things like sending out spam, you could end up being blacklisted and whatever, but anybody can run their own mail server. Similarly, Mastodon is an open source platform. Anybody can run it. Um, but like email, we can interoperate. So you're not like locked into AOL, CompuServe, you know, we, we get to email whoever we want. And uh, it's actually interesting to think how that sort of a situation might, you know, be the, the social media 2.0, uh, especially if, you know, Twitter would go away because it wouldn't monetize, et cetera. But anyway, you've got different Mastodon instances that have different kinds of rules and in different kinds of countries, you know, that 
is going to be influenced by their their national laws. So interesting stuff and definitely great topics to talk with students about or have them write about or, uh, you know, just definitely be aware of. And then a couple of their related stories. Um, I, we don't have to rehash uh, Zuckerberg in Congress last week, but he did get called out by a number of, of members of Congress from both sides of the aisle, including some um, uh, uh, some pretty harsh statements suggesting that, that Zuckerberg wasn't taking both both threats uh, to our democracy for Facebook seriously enough, and then more importantly, he wasn't taking Congress seriously enough, that they would step in and regulate perhaps to his disliking if he can't get his act together sometime soon. So um, interesting stuff going on there. And then also related to that is that um, Facebook employees, it's not a huge group, it's 250 out of uh 40,000 Facebook employees. I let that roll off the tongue. 40,000 Facebook employees. 250 of them have signed an internal letter demanding that Facebook take um, political ads more seriously and perhaps uh, enact a ban. So a lot of interesting things going on right now. Dr. Farage is very correct that this is really good fodder of discussion to have with your students because it is our students, our K-12 students, that in a lot of ways will need to fix these wrongs are going to have to figure out where all these technology pieces fit together in a puzzle that allows for people to feel heard and engage in free expression and free speech while still protecting our institutions, you know, like democracy. Absolutely. Well, I'll uh, segue that to an article that I probably, I don't know if it, it would be under media literacy, not really tech correction. It's an old article, but they've updated this game. And so I put this under miscellaneous, which by the way, if you'd like to access our show notes, uh, we did use our little banner recently, so let's put our little banner up here for show notes, edtechsr.com slash links. And so this is to a game. The article is entitled How to Play the Factitious, if I'm saying that right, Factitious, yeah, Factitious 2018 News Game from Bob Hone posting on his own Medium channel. Um, but I've also put the link into the game. And so uh, it tops now the 2019 version, 1.1. Million plays, and you can choose easy for middle school, medium for high school, or hard for college. And so uh, you go ahead and click on the level that you want. It's going to present an article, and you're going to either swipe if you're on a touch device, or you're going to use a, a green check mark or a, a red circle with an X to say, do you think you know this is, is real or not? And so um, I actually played this a little bit this last week, and one of the things that I found is don't just – you know, I was looking at the sources a lot, and even in some of the sources, which, I mean, The Onion was one of them, but The New Yorker was one, and not all of them, um, you know, some of them are opinion pieces, and, you know, there's satire and things like that. So you can't just, you know, say, oh, that's a mainstream media source. It it couldn't be fake. Um, some of them do qualify. And anyway, it's a uh, useful tool to use with students to think about how is it that we go about determining if something is legitimate, credible, et cetera? Great. And again, you know, we can't stress enough. These have got to be discussions in your classroom. And to be honest, there are a few content areas where I don't think these discussions would be out of, or I'm sorry, these discussions would be out of place. So absolutely focus on, on this. And, you know, I, the other thing I like about talking with teens in particular about social media is a lot of them, um, I think are maybe more aware than you're giving them credit for about the impact of these technologies on, you know, obviously the lives of, 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 of humans, but particularly on the lives of teens. And I've been uh, more, frankly, more encouraged talking with teens than I have with adults about where smartphones and cell phones fit uh, within uh, the broader part of our culture. I will say that, that, uh, that it's not true that the teens are unaware of the impact. It's just that I think they need more guidance from us uh, in the form of discussion and debate about where these things fit. Well, you have put a ton of other articles in there. Um, where else would you like to go next? Sure. Uh, let me do some quick Chrome OS stuff because that's, uh, you know, my, my favorite stuff, uh, to talk about. Uh, I, two articles that both came out today from Chrome Unbox, which is my favorite source for, uh, Chrome news. But the first one is that Thunderbolt 3 is on the way to Chrome OS and I would assume newer and high-end Chromebooks. And for those of you that are not, 
um, aware of what Thunderbolt is. Thunderbolt is a standard that is built into some docking stations and some plugs that allow you to trade a lot of data in stable and high-end ways. And what it's been as of late um, is a USB-C, which is the... Um, Standard that, that a lot of technology is moving towards. This is a USB-C plug that's plugged into my, um, uh, my Chromebook. And as is, USB-C is a pretty functional, um, a standard in, in, in many interpretations. It allows for power and data to exist on the same cable. You can plug in monitors that way. You can plug in, um, USB uh, converters and put old fashioned USB items in. It's really great. But Thunderbolt 3 would allow you to access Thunderbolt 3 docks which allow you a lot of, of bandwidth to power things like high-end displays, so 4K displays based on the humble Chromebook. And for those of you that are interested in maybe using Chrome in a desktop context, which is what I do at both work and home via different means, this means you could buy a decent Chromebook, let's say the, the basement uh, model of the um, the, the new Pixelbook that is, is out as of this week, you can then use Thunderbolt to plug it into a, a one cable into a docking box that would then allow you to plug in all your other peripherals into that box and treat it like a desktop, including multiple monitors. And it's, it's really excellent news for the Chrome faithful. Um, but if you're also looking for a more desktop experience, um, I, Chrome Unbox also uh, noted today that CTL, which is a Chromebook, um, uh, I'm sorry, Chrome OS manufacturer, I believe they're in the Portland, Oregon area, they've announced that their, their uh, lowest end model of their Chrome box is headed to marketplace, and it's a $470 Chrome box that has an i3 processor and 8 gigabytes of RAM. And the reason why I mention that is because we have a couple of CTL Chrome boxes at work, and they are really outstanding. I'm using one right now as my primary desktop, and admittedly, we bought higher end specs than this, but an i3 chip and eight gigabytes is more than enough to do the vast majority of tasks, even for a power user. And so if you're interested in exploring Chrome OS as a desktop or operating system, or if you're trying to outfit a lab that perhaps has traditional monitors, keyboards, mice, and you're looking for desktop replacements for aging Macs or PCs, this might be an opportunity for you to stack out a lab for you know the six and a half years that, that you're guaranteed updates on those Chromeboxes. So really outstanding. Stuff. And I'll tell a story that we switched our lower school and middle school library over to Chromeboxes about three years ago. And we, you know, still have a, a Windows-based uh, Windows 10 system for the circulation desk because of the Alexandria software that it runs. But the rest of those machines, of which I think there's probably about six, um, you know, we kept the monitors, keyboard, and mice and put a Chromebox on there. Uh, because the card catalog is is all on the web and students are doing web research. There's just not a need in that particular lab uh, when we're a Google school, you know, but to, to access Google Docs and, and be able to use the web. So it's been phenomenal. Um, to your point, though, about updates, that is something really uh, important to keep in mind. And the, the limit, I think, is it six years or six and a half years that Google makes it the commitment? It's six and a half now, but there is a lot of conjecture suggesting that, for example, Lenovo apparently is releasing some Chromebooks for education that will be closer to seven or eight years of guaranteed mm -hmm. updates. It's a huge problem, mostly because there's a lot of folks um, in the uh, secondhand computer industry or refurbished computer industry that, that will sell uh, uh, Chromebooks that are no longer being updated for a ridiculous price, $79.99, not realizing that there's either months left in the updates or no exactly. updates at all. Right. And and so be aware of that uh, in terms of, of the aftermarket and refurbished, because that starting point is when that model came out. So, you know, you, you could have a very short amount of time, depending upon how old the model is that you're getting if you're picking up a, a refurbished version. Um, and just think about that in terms of your total cost of ownership and all those good kind of things. Because once something is passed out of its support, it really needs to be moved off your network and, um, you know, discarded and, and surplus. That would be my opinion. Um, but, you know, it's it's a security thing. So but I'm glad to hear that. That's that's exciting. It's always good to get the Chrome updates from you, Jason, our chief 
Google evangelist in the house. And I will mention uh, maybe just as a promotion for a great session I'm working on for NCC in March 2020 is I'm doing a, a session called Advanced Chromebookology. I'm going to share all my tips and tricks for being a primary Chrome user. And I have to say, I, I'm even actually a little surprised by this. I started using a Chromebook in 2014 when my beloved MacBook Air 11 uh, lost an epic battle with a cup of coffee. And um, I started using what today would be described it was a very low-end Chromebook uh, uh, and and liked the platform, but wasn't good enough to replace with. In the last, well, really 18, 24 months, I've started slowly moving towards being only Chromebook. And now I just I, I only travel with a Chromebook. And frankly, in my office, I have access to other machines if I need them, but I'm using a Chromebook full-time. So don't let people tell you you can't be productive on a Chromebook because you absolutely can't. Well, and when I went to Egypt a couple years ago, uh, I, just, I, I took an Android phone uh, and I also just took a Chromebook um, and I did take an HDMI to VGA adapter, which proved to be important because we, we had VGA adapters in some cases. But yeah, Chromebooks are incredibly capable. Um, and of course, you need that internet connection or to enable offline mode if you want to be prepared for an offline situation. But good stuff. Very powerful. Yep. Great. So, Wes, where to next? Let's see. Why don't we uh, pick up another one I put under miscellaneous. Um, this is Microsoft wins Pentagon's $10 billion Jedi contract thwarting Amazon. This was the New York Times on October the 24th. And the gist of this is that, you know, some people are thinking – in order to get 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 back at Amazon and the the ways in which our chief executive feels about uh, Bezos, uh, that that played into it. But this is a huge contract, ten billion dollars for the Department of Defense, um, and it is known as Jedi for the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure. Um, Amazon, Microsoft, IBM, Oracle, Google, all fighting to transform the military's cloud computing systems, um, and it's just you know it's. It's really needed, I think, in terms of modernizing computer systems from the 1980s and the 1990s, but a really big win for Microsoft, and hopefully they will be tending to all of the security aspects of this because, you know, as we've talked about on the show, once something has been digitized, it is, you know, likely that it's going to be hacked at some point, that it can be hacked. All computer systems have vulnerabilities and are subject to infiltration and, and hacking, so we will wish wish the uh, fine folks at Microsoft good luck as they seek to modernize these kinds of weapon systems and hopefully do that in a secure fashion, which will hopefully not be based on the Windows operating system. But anyway, that's one of the puzzles that Microsoft continues to wrestle with, right, is what will their next generation OS be and in the way in which Google was able to write an OS from the ground up and, you know, really put security at the top and, you know, cloud management and all that, all that good kind of stuff. It'll be interesting to see what Microsoft ends up doing and whether they're going to be using any next generation OS stuff or if it's just going to be kind of the same old, you know, Windows systems. Who knows? Awesome. Well, let's jump into another uh, major player here. Apple announced a lot of interesting things in the last week, and I guess I'd start here. Um, Apple has released their so-called uh, AirPods Pro. They'll be coming uh, today, actually, is when they were released, and for $249. And these are the follow-up to their um, wireless AirPod wireless headphones. Uh, I'm sure you've seen them because they are um, on, uh, in finer ears of Apple users everywhere. And as it turns out, uh, I traveled to Seattle this past weekend uh, for an annual checkup on um, my transplanted kidney. By the way, all good news, all thumbs up there. Thanks to many of you that, that had uh, sent me a back channel uh, about that. Good good stuff all around. But the, the uh, thing that I always think is interesting is that the, the eye test right? Like, like seeing the technology, like what you see out in the open. And I love airports for this because everyone's got their phone out. Everyone's got travel tech along with them. Many of them have headphones or headsets on. And I got to say, I saw way more AirPods than I did any other form factor, including old fashioned headphones uh, this past weekend. And I'm, I'm sorry, I was going to bring my set of them. I've even purchased uh, a little Bluetooth set 
that is a somewhat similar in model. Uh, they're by a group called Tau, Tau Electronics. Um, they're not particularly well rated. I think I got a great pair of them because there's been some quality control issues, but I love these little wireless Bluetooth uh, headphones that individually stick in your ear and recharge via a battery pack. Well, um, the folks that I know that have them really love them because they have cool uh, features like they can move from device to device. So if you're using your desktop uh, Mac OS device and you walk away with your phone, it will actually move the, the, the headphones to your other device and using their continuity system, even if you're playing music, be able to move that from device to device. And I know I half dozen folks that uh, are advanced Mac users that didn't uh, invest in generation one of these that are now all in on the Apple Pod Pro. So, Wes, I have to ask, have you used a pair of the regular ones yet? I have not actually ever plugged them in. Our daughter has a set of, of AirPods, which she likes a lot, but I have not tried them. Um, I did think she's holding it up, showing it to me right now. No, it's okay. Um, I could use it as a visual aid right now, she says, if I'd like to. Um, but... You know, the fact that there's a little tap thing for transparency, because these new ones have noise canceling. And so, like, if you're on the, the Apple ad, which I did watch, you know, shows the, you know, person coming on the, the PA system there in the airplane. And so you just tap it, you know, in order to listen. And anyway, pretty fancy. But what's the price of those? Those are just crazy. Yeah, that's a lot of money for some headphones, which you can always spend a lot of money on headphones, right? Just like... A lot of things with technology, you know, if you've got the cash, people have the fancier models to show you. So I'm sporting, I think, a nice little $10 set from <clears throat> Target, which I invested in with, you know, has the microphone in it, whatever. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm using the iRig, so this is my normal, normal podcasting mic, but I don't think I'll be in, in the, in the business. Is that tra- uh, continuity feature you're talking about both for Mac or Apple as well as Android users or are those Android users? You're talking about the use the the version you're discussing. The continuity is Apple side. Like that's okay. this, that's the, in fact, you know, I I as 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 those of you that listened in the past know I'm wrestling a little bit with the lack of uh, smartwatch options and as I think I've mentioned before, the killer application for me is that I have a constant uh, glucose monitor and it talks to my watch and without having to look at my phone anytime during the day, I can just look at my watch and know where my blood sugar is at. And um, that and the cardiac stuff and the uh, interesting data that is starting to connect to the Apple Watch is really tempting to me. I would also say that as much as I don't really want to reinvest in the Apple architecture because I'm really now in the Chrome uh, universe, uh, very significantly in the Chrome universe, but these AirPods seem nice. Uh, the pros for 250 bucks are a little much, right? But the thing about Apple stuff is that I cannot say a single thing I've ever purchased from Apple could be described as junky. So I'm assuming they come with a standard one-year warranty, uh, gets rid of all the risk. Uh, they probably have huge resale value because that's also something that, that, uh, Apple has been pretty famous for to this point, And it is very tempting. 250 is a lot of money, but from my understanding, the clarity of the sound and the killer continuity feature, that's extraordinary. I think that's something really interesting too. Let's talk a, a little Facebook. So I think you put this under the uh, media tab. This is Bloomberg, October 25th. Facebook launches news section to compensate publishers. So where we don't have Facebook taking a stand against disinformation online and manipulative political ads, we basically have them saying, publishers, we hear you and we're going to, you know, throw some pennies your way to, you know, allow you to get get some of the vast, you know, hoard of money that we're uh, hauling in as people share your free content on our platform. Uh, so there's going to be a team of employees that are going to to curate articles for, quote, Facebook news. And then some publishers are going to be paid to have their articles in a separate section. Um, and so I think, I mean, this is going to be a whole section called Facebook news. This is absolutely fascinating, right? The way in which social media companies use algorithms to, you know, shape what it is that comes across our feeds and, and into, into our eyeballs, uh, and into our ears if we're listening or, or, uh, you know, watching video, et cetera. Um, I still believe that we need to 
be much more assertive on a media literacy and, and digital literacy standpoint, helping people learn to craft their own feed, not just simply turning on. It's sort of like turning on the television. Let me just turn on the TV and see what's on. And I'll just watch whatever's on. And of course, now there's a million channels and that's, you know, whatever uh, it's changed. But Turning on Facebook and just seeing whatever's there is turning over the keys of your brain to Mark Zuckerberg and, and his team. And while I, you know, enjoy some of the things about, you know, for instance, YouTube and training YouTube about the things that I want to see. And I was learning about uh, Galileo and the, the Galilean moons of Jupiter. We had a chance to look through a telescope at a friend's house this last weekend and saw those moons. And, you know, it's phenomenal the ways in which recommendation engines can work positively for you. But at the same time, uh, I, I think there's a lot of Un, unware, what's the right word? Just, you know, folks that are not necessarily realizing how, how buttons are being pushed. Did, did I, by the way, share the, that website spinner? Did I share that as a geek of the week? Okay. I got to throw this. I'll throw this in, in the geek, in the geeks of the week, but the ways in which people are pushing buttons and pulling levers to try to get folks emotional, get you upset, you know, and not only get you to buy, you know, particular products, but to get you to think in certain ways and, you know, support certain political candidates or political movements, et cetera. So anyway, I, um, I'm, I'm not really enamored with this by Facebook, but I think it's pretty interesting. And this is probably also a, a little reflection of the, the tech correction, you know, because as we covered in the show and talked about the first time, you know, Congress had a chance for people to take pot shots at Facebook. What were they saying is journalism, they're killing journalism. You know, we got to kill Facebook because they're trying to kill us. So thoughts, right. Dr. Neifer? Well, yeah, I mean, I, for, it's interesting to see how it's played out over the last 15 years, because at first it was that, uh, well, I mean, newspapers made a mistake or news outlets made a mistake 25 years ago by not initially monetizing news, uh, by offering for free online. They created terrible precedents that has made it very difficult to right that wrong, right? And honestly, I'm not entirely sure if the Internet we've taken off as it did if it wasn't for the free content movement early on. But the bottom line is, is that here we are in 2019 and a lot of the income on journalism is gone. It's just not there anymore because people refuse to pay for a lot of varieties of content. Now, I will say that personally, I you know uh, uh, subscribe to a minimum of four publications now, um, not including uh, various uh, kind of lifestyle magazines. There's a couple of cooking magazines. The Bon Appetit magazine is outstanding, by the way, if for no other reason than to help support the excellent Bon Appetit YouTube channel. But the part that that it's been interesting about that is that at one point, I don't know if Facebook aggressively went after um, uh, the news media, but it got to a point where, you know, news media was expected to give away their product for free to help justify content, um, that was raking in advertising that went to the bottom line of Facebook. So this is a, an interesting development. I wish it happened 10 years ago. I wish that Facebook had felt the need to protect journalism and income driven towards journalism before 2019. I don't know. We'll make a difference. I, I'm not sure. Stay tuned. Very good. Um, let's see. How about uh, the SMS standard? I've written several articles about this. Um, Apple still hasn't chimed in. Do you want to do that Verge article? Sure. Well, um, the uh, AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, T-Mobile, the big four uh, uh, mobile providers in the United States have announced that they are going to uh, uh, replace SMS, which has been the standard for a very long time in uh, cell communication, with something that's referred to as RCS, which is a standard that is dramatically more modern than this SMS standard and has been something that uh, Google in particular has been uh, accused of not helping push in the right direction because of, of its slowness to adopt that standard in the Android platform. But in essence, the new standard allows you for, for those of you that are Apple users know that you get a lot more data and information 
Um, when you stay on iMessage, that is the Apple account to Apple account communication protocol, and it will show you things like read receipts. Uh, it shows you when the other person is typing. Um, it, it adds in a lot of additional functionality um, and allows for more rich messaging back and forth. Well, that's a layer that sits on top of SMS, and in fact, Apple attempts to take over your texting and keep things inside of iMessage because it wants to be able to use those enhanced features. Well, um, RCS uh, is essentially the same thing um, with, uh, 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 or I'm sorry, RCS is essentially uh, evolved platform that adds in a lot of functionality and standards dramatically more advanced than current SMS technology. It's just that it hasn't been quick to be adopted. Uh, so this, the fact that the four majors are taking this, this effort forward means the text messaging will become more data rich. One thing to mention on this topic is it is still, of course, not encrypted. And so that is something right. really big for the government. If they were trying to propose an encrypted messaging you know, standard that would replace SMS, you can bet that the U.S. government uh, would be, you know, releasing a lot of statements and things like that about how terrible it is. I don't think we have anything article-wise in the show notes this week about, you know, Facebook, but that's a, a big deal that Facebook has been on the verge and they are expected, I think, to switch their messaging platform over to a secure protocol. And that's going to mean that, you know, law enforcement is not going to have the, the visibility and the opportunity to get so much reporting about uh, dark and illegal things that are happening um, using that platform. So it will not be a encrypted modality for communication, but it will be really interesting. I mean, we haven't heard anything, I don't think, from Apple on this in terms of whether iPhones. I can't imagine, you know, there being a new, you know, standard for the nation. And, and it, I would guess this is probably going to move out of the United States and, and it'd be adopted by other carriers as well. I can't imagine Apple not supporting that, but it's going to be interesting to see how how that's, you know, finessed. I mean, on your iOS device right now, I think you basically, in your contacts, you know, say that this particular number is an iPhone, you know, and then it automatically defaults to use iMessage. It'll be interesting to see how that works with RCS and what Apple's response is, because so far there hasn't hasn't been any. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, that's um, part of what makes the world go round on these technologies when we have standards that are adopted across all platforms so that we can do things that communicate with one another. And I will say that uh, it will be interesting to find out where this goes. I don't think there will ever be a permanent rift between like Android and Apple. I, it's in no one's interest to do that, even if Apple and Google, for that matter, wants to build things on top of existing platforms. But that's something to keep in mind. So... Uh, let me mention, actually, I want to get your take on this one because I bet you Dollar West, you understand this infinitely better than I do. So last week, Google announced that they have achieved quantum supremacy. And I know enough about quantum supremacy to say that I know that that based on an, a, a radio show I heard last week, I'm assuming it's an NPR story, that, that means that Computing's a lot faster under quantum supremacy uh, conditions, but do you know something about this? Could you explain quantum computing even in a headline to me? Well, basically now uh, bits have two modes. They're either a zero or a one, and quantum is going to allow them to have more than one state. I should have my daughter on right now because they've been talking about quantum numbers and uh, getting into a little bit of quantum uh, theory in their science class, I think. Um, so the, the big thing here with quantum computing is speed. And so once this is achieved, there's a lot of implications that this has. One of the things is, is encryption and the amount of time that it takes to, um, what is it called? Brute force, you know, hack a system in terms of, of guessing and, you know, how, how quickly that that can happen. I think there's some people that really fear that encryption regimes as they exist today will be defunct. I mean, this would be an extreme view, but a possible view when quantum computing is, is mainstream and when criminals basically have, have access to this. So, um, yeah, this article, why, what is quantum supremacy and why is Google's breakthrough such a big deal? Um, I think, um, well, here's a, here's a quote. Uh, it's insane because if we build a working quantum computer, it demonstrates that we've achieved a kind of physical mastery over matter in the universe at its most fundamental level. We are controlling it. We're manipulating it to our own ends and we're performing calculations with it. And we're, um, 
that's kind of stunning. And the fact that engineers are actually pulling it off is kind of amazing. I, I don't know. I will not pretend to understand quantum computing entirely. The things that I have read about it, uh, you know, say that, it, you know, people who claim they fully understand it, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. There's just some very bizarre behavior that happens at the subatomic level. And when we talk about, you know, quantum, just not in the, in the macro uh, area. Um, it's actually interesting because I think there's a fair number of adults out there whose conceptions of physics are Newtonian and, you know, talking about planets and things at, you know, a, a planetary level. And this whole idea of quantum, which has been around, I think, since the early you know 20th century, it, it's stuff that people might have kind of studied in school, but probably not a whole lot. So my understanding about why it's a big deal is it's just going to be very disruptive to computing uh, people have talked for years about Moore's law. No, oh, we're reaching the end of Moore's law and the, and the doubling and all that. And I think, you know, quantum computing, uh, when you think about supercomputers, you know, vision, the Cray supercomputers, and there's been different times where, you know, the national security agency or, you know, China and, and it's back and forth and people, you know, in terms of speed, who's got the fastest supercomputer in the world. And we've had, you know, these different computers, um, you know, connected together so that in series or whatever, I don't know if it's parallel series. Uh, anyway, they're able to combine their forces and, and create this vast computing, computing power. So it's probably a little bit like the national, you know, the, the national debt or these enormous numbers. Like, can you, can you comprehend it? We've been talking a little bit about DNA in a class I'm teaching. I mean, we have 6 billion base pairs of DNA. You get 3 billion from your mom and 3 billion from your dad. And you have about 60 mutations. Who can even think about a number that big? So the speed of quantum computing, I mean, the speed now is, you know, probably just almost beyond our comprehension when we compare it to the early days, you know, what they took on Apollo 11, it was just, you know, less than it's been, it's been less than our cell phone for a number of years. So do you think quantum computing is going to have an impact on the Montana digital Academy in the next five years, Jason? Uh, unlikely, but having read, and by the way, I understand it even better now of talking to you. Thank you. That was what I was hoping <laughs> this is kind of getting those pieces, but you know, the, the impact articles, which unfortunately were a little light on the, what is this part of it? But the, what the impact is, is that, um, you know, uh, one one perspective I heard last week was that it would allow um, in its implementation in a more nuanced way, not just discovering it, but in a more nuanced way to allow us to do way more calculations and have more power in processors with, for way less power consumption is an example of where quantum computing could do some really interesting things for us. And as we, you know, transition to try to, to decrease our ultimate uh, uh, electricity footprint through batteries and new power sources, that is interesting piece. But yeah, it's going to be make a big deal. And let me mention this on encryption. So a, a friend of mine, um, Eric Ebert, teaches uh, some of our higher level math and our computer science classes. And he's done summer programs teaching, you know, kids how to how to do encryption algorithms and things like that. I mean, this could radically change what we what we now know is the secure web, right? If 256 you know, bit what if the standards for SSL and for encryption, we have certificates that different uh, websites will have. And and the web is moved basically to an HTTPS everywhere. So most web, well, a lot more websites than, let's say, five or 10 years ago. I mean, I'm still running lots of WordPress sites that don't have have encryption, but Google's really pushed for this. We've got a lot of encryption, but that is based upon uh, a relatively modest level of encryption. And so if I'm understanding this right, maybe I'll, ver I'll talk with Eric about this and you know verify maybe before next week's show to come back and check in on this. But I think one of the biggest things is, you know, online banking, online commerce, keeping our numbers secret. Um, one of the things that might end up happening is, you know, needing numbers to be generated on the fly, kind of like the Apple uh, new you know, credit card, right? Because it's not going to have numbers. Uh, you can get it now. I haven't applied for it. And I don't know if we will, but it doesn't have numbers printed on it. And somehow it's, it's generating these numbers, you know, using math. So how does this connect to the classroom? Hey kids, we need your math powers to, you know, get really, really good because not only is there opportunities to, you know, create cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and all of these sorts of things, uh, we've got to figure out how to have secure, confidential communications. And in a world of quantum computing, I think that becomes much more challenging. So 
the computers themselves may be able to defeat some of the best math that we have or, and we're just going to have to, I guess, amp up our game for how, you know, how long the encryption strings are and, and perhaps even how the encryption is created. That is mathematics beyond my, uh, educational level. I'll readily admit that. Yeah. And mine too, sadly enough, but interesting things to come. So I can't believe this. We're down to the last 10 minutes of the show this week. What other, well, actually there's a quick story I want to get in here and then uh, we can uh, pick up any last stragglers. Um, as uh, those that have listened to us in the past know, I have a on again, off again, love relationship with my Android Wear watch um, that I would love to get a newer one, but there is a lot of um, uh, uh, bad products in that space right now. It seems like a, a platform of decline as opposed to a platform that's growing. I did read right before we got on air an article that suggested there's a new uh, evolved processor that is being released uh, in the next couple of months. Months, which means we could see great new Android Wear watches in 2020. But Google is rumored to be talking to the folks at Fitbit about taking over that organization. It, it's probably both uh, things related to patents and design and also what's referred to as an a cool hire, which is to hire folks through acquisition of their company. And if they are serious about staying in the uh, smartwatch market or wearable market, that this might be a good hire for them. I loved my Fitbit. Absolutely loved my Fitbit. I wore one for uh, uh, almost 10 years until I moved to an Android Wear watch so that I could get the blood sugar information. So that's interesting. We'll see if that brings something uh, new to the Google sphere. Sounds good. I've got one more article uh, before the Geek of the Week. This is just, this is wild. This is another one from Google. So this is from October 24th from the Google AI blog, Learning to Smell, Using Deep Learning to pre Predict the Olfactory Properties of Molecules. So this is a fairly dense article here, um, but they go into a little of the detail about how smell works. It says, Odor perception in humans is the result of the activation of 400 different types of olfactory receptors expressed in 1 million olfactory sensory neurons, a small patch of tissue called the olfactory epithelium. And I won't read the whole thing, but basically they are applying machine learning and the ability for algorithms to take in data to predict what different kinds of molecules will actually smell like. I'm reminded of a, 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 an actual business that we visited in Burlington, Vermont, a couple years ago when we were up there, my wife and I, for the Create, Make, and Learn conference, and it's called Alice the Magician. And this is a, a company that has figured out how to extract the essential sense of different kinds of things. They were doing a project with, I think it's the University of, of Vermont, uh, there with VR. They were, they use, they sell it to high end, um, bars and hotels like the Four Seasons and things like that. Cause I guess when you have a drink, a lot of your pleasure of this comes from smelling this and, you know, being able to anticipate it. And anyway, this is just wild stuff, right? So machine learning utilizing, you know, computers that can really do a great job at pattern recognition, tackling some incredibly complex phenomena like how, you know, what are smells? Where do smells, you know, how, how do we manipulate smells and then trying to predict the smells of molecules? So you can probably imagine where if you think of Ready Player One and the future of the, you know, online environment with virtual uh, experiences, you know, smells are extremely powerful. In fact, sometimes a smell, you know, can bring back a rush of memories. And there's, I think, some really strong mapping in the brain to uh, smells that, uh, and, you know, music and things like that. It's pretty fascinating how that, how that stuff works. So if you're looking for some pretty, uh, serious scientific and AI focused reading, that will be the article for you. Jason, if you were going to be controlling your olfactory sensory perception, uh, any radical changes you would be making in, in your daily walk? Probably not, although it's funny you should mention the notion of how powerful smell is. Every time I smell like a, a diesel bus or even an airplane, it takes me back to the many years as a, a student and then debate coach. I was on buses at 4 o'clock in the morning so we could go to uh, towns across Montana to engage in debate tournaments, and I'll get that smell ever leaves your mind. It puts me right back into freezing buses in the middle of the night. Uh, it is a very interesting piece of this, and... Um, 
I well, I mean, there has been long the the desire for smell of vision, which is a uh, a plan that's been around for some time. That people trying to recreate smells to help enhance things like movies. Um, I, it feels like that has the possibility of getting extra gross if you think about that in a little more detail. But uh, uh, it's cool technology. Yeah. All right. Okay. I have one more quick article that I want to talk about. And it just, it, it, it's from a nine to five Google today. Um, Google is apparently in the middle of developing something for their web browser and also Chrome OS that will block, um, intensive ads. When I say intensive, I'm not, not by engaging. What I mean by intensive is resource intensive ads. And so if something has HTML5, or I guess maybe for the next, uh, 13 months flash content that is broken down, that is, is, is using too much of the processor. Uh, you can turn on a flag that will take down those ads for you. So in other words, it's going to make, uh, advertisers ideally be a little more proactive in making sure that advertisements are svelte and able to be uh, shown to you without taking away um, a lot of resources from, from showing the content on a page. And this, of course, is interesting because Google has made it more difficult for ad blocking software to exist on their browser. And the fact that they're working on what I consider to be an interesting and nuanced way of blocking ads, ba- doing it based on resource intensity with your uh, laptop, desktop, Chromebook, that's pretty interesting stuff. So you can turn that on now. The experimental function is on now. And there's article or there's instructions in the 9 to 5 Google article to do that. Follow-up question to Flash. Uh, just responded to one of our faculty who was asking about this for curriculum. Adobe is is killing and ending support for Flash in December of 2020. So that is, you know, the middle of next academic year. Uh, my recommendation to this faculty member was you need to make sure that your curriculum and your activities are not tied to Flash for next school year. It, uh I think this is probably affecting you all at the Montana Digital Academy. What advice yeah. and what what are what are you what do you all recommend people do with respect to flash-based curriculum? Well, I'll tell you right now that what's made this complicated is that there is a perception, and I've ran into a couple of folks that spend more time on the IT end of tech as opposed to the implementation end of ed tech that just don't get why. Go find other content. And what people don't understand is that for upwards of 15 years, Flash was the way to develop multimedia content. And it is is not effortless and it is not um, cheap to replace, you know, enhanced, digitally enhanced media uh, on the fly. And so we have been, uh, the vast majority of Flash content has been eliminated from our content and, and, and curriculum, but there's some persnickety elements that still remain. Uh, we just discovered the other day, for example, that uh, all of the voice Files in objective assessments in our German one and two classes are bringing up little flash players. We didn't have any idea that was the case. Um, it, it wasn't an issue because a lot of people aren't running into flash problems. But as it turns out, we 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 had a student that was on a brand new laptop where and was attempting to use IE. I'm sorry, uh, attempting to use um, Edge, and there was no flash installed, um, and it was uh, uh, difficult for her to see the audio. So we fixed it, but it's a pretty interesting piece. So yes, I think that's great advice. Like this is the last time, like nothing during the school year that you have on flash. This has to be the last time you do that and you can move in another direction. But I will say that it will be a challenge. Uh, you know, a lot of platforms have moved away for it from some time. YouTube is an example of this. They used to deliver via flash and now it's all what's referred to as HTML five, but yeah, keep an eye on it. And if I were you, I would also, uh, flash is integrated into Chrome directly, and they've been, uh, Google's been slowly cranking that down to where it's hard to get to that setting to even turn it back on again. I would recommend turning it off now, whether it's uninstalling it on Firefox, if you're on Windows, um, or on a Mac for that matter, or if you're on Chrome, just turn it off completely so you can use your daily tool set and make sure nothing's impacted by Flash. Yep. Very good. All right. Are we ready for some Geeks of the Week? 
Let's do it. Uh, I can go ahead and start. Um, I just interesting piece of information that I learned because of some assistance I'm giving to my in-laws. I am, of course, family tech support director. Uh, so I get brought in a lot of decisions and they live in a rural area in Montana where they have struggled to find good, consistent Internet. They have DSL, but it's terribly slow and inconsistent. Um, this is not going to be a solution for them, but it was announced today that T-Mobile is offering $50 a month internet access that is over 4G cell. In other words, you buy this router, you plug it into your house, it accesses the internet via wireless signals, and then delivers that using a Wi-Fi router. That's actually something very popular in Europe. Um, a lot of folks in Europe utilize a mobile-delivered broadband internet access in their home. It's a very new phenomenon in the United States, and I think this concept will help a lot of the rural areas that are still struggling to find wired internet that is not expensive and not particularly uh, a useful satellite internet uh, to provide broadband to their homes. What is the quota, though, per month? Do you- well, they say there's no caps, but I read some debate about this on the Internet today. And, and sadly, you know, there are places you can find a bit debating everything, but the... Uh, there's a Reddit discussion on this, and most people assume that it would be what's referred to as deprioritized after 50 gigabytes. Uh, 50 is not that much. Uh, I, I'm a heavy user, and I download a lot of movies and media, so I probably don't count. 50 would would be a a a, a weekend for me of of uh, downloading movies and, and engaging in media, but. Uh, Deprioritize means that if it's a busy time of day and a lot of people are on the cell tower using data, that you would be slower during that time period, but it remains to be seen. It's just available starting today. People have signed up for it. Many have been told they're on a wait list, so we'll wait and see. Okay, very good. A couple of Geeks of the Week for me. Uh, First ones are videos from Apple. These are on YouTube. First one is the new privacy ad. It's called Privacy on iPhone, uh, there's just some pretty amazing drone footage they have in this shot. Interesting, of course, to see Apple positioning themselves as, you know, the big privacy company amidst all the other companies that are uh, basically following the economic model of surveillance capitalism. Shout out Shoshana Zuboff and her book uh, by the same title. Um, next is also from Apple, and this is about a year old, but this is amazing. So I have what I call wonder links that I share generally at the start of lessons with my students. This is called Experiments by Apple, shot on uh, on iPhone. And basically, I guess they, you know, paid a group of folks to just do amazing kinds of things with water, with different kinds of chemicals, with fire, and then seeing as they you know shot them in slow motion and they lit them in different ways. There's like three different videos. And then um, I don't actually, I couldn't find the first one. This is a playlist, um, but they have kind of a behind the scenes of how they shot these and created them. And yeah, it is phenomenal stuff. Probably not things that you're going to be doing at home, um, but pretty amazing. And then the last one that I just thought of as we were talking in the show uh, I'm not going to put a link to the actual website. I don't want to give them any kind of click boost. I'm sure that the EdTech Situation Room is, you know, the number one source that Google goes to to determine, you know, how to prioritize their search results. But uh, the, this is just their official YouTube uh, promo. It's called the Spinner Animated Explainer Video. And this is a service which is legit. Like this was on NPR. There's a Forbes article about it. In fact, I I can put the Forbes article that talks about it. They even brag about the coverage that they've received in mainstream media. But let's say, for instance, you wanted someone to propose marriage and they weren't really ready for that. You get a link from them and then your campaign is launched. And over the next 180 days, they start to see a variety of messages in their social media feed, in their apps, on the web, which subconsciously tries to influence them. Hey, it's time to pop the question. Hey, how do you know when you're right? The other campaigns they have are settle outside of court. I mean, seriously, I saw this and I was like, is this freaking real? I mean, yes, this is real. So you can try and hack the minds of your quote friends and acquaintances, or maybe the people who you're, you know, litigating with. 
and I'm not, by the way, endorsing this. I think this is, you know, a, a pretty, you know, underhanded, uh, immoral and, uh, dishonest way of trying to, you know, influence people's minds. But of course, this kind of thing is happening all the time right now with, with advertising and the way that people are trying to get, you know, influence and, and the ways people are trying to push levers and pull buttons, you know, to get people emotional, get them upset or to get them to, you know, make different kinds of decisions. So this is just egregiously manipulative of people. And this is actually a company that's out there and people are giving them money today. So made for a really good media literacy lesson. And I will, I'll put a link also to the little lesson that I put together on our website called don't be tricked online. And I think I shared a website about scams that should be illegal last week, perhaps. Uh, and that was part of that lesson. This is like an extension, but Kind of crazy stuff. So, Dr. Neifer, when you are not here helping us get more educated about the Google universe, the technology correction, and other, pardon me, vital issues, where can people find you online? Well, you can find me at thespinner.net where I will be offering opportunities to impact something or another. That's, I, I, you had asked me earlier if, uh, if we'd shared this in the past. Definitely not, because this is, I, like, looking at this, this is intense. So, Wow, 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 wow. But ignoring that, on Twitter, I am a tech savvy teach. Um, I blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncc.org. Uh, we did open up registration for our March 2020 conference last week. We have an extraordinary uh, setup of speakers. Of course, I will be there along with my partner in crime, Mike Agostinelli, where between the two of us, we'll be doing... It's 10, 12 presentations over the, the three days that we're there. We've got a lot of great stuff and new content we're developing just for this conference. So www.ncce.org. And you, Dr. Fryer. I am W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog, speedofcreativity.org, is where I publish some posts and uh, intermittent podcasts. Uh, you can listen to my anchor podcast, if you'd like to, by saying, hey, gee, Play the latest episode of Class with Dr. Fryer, which I've only published a few things there. Uh, but I'm also publishing our media and digital literacy lessons on a new Google site for school, and that is on mdtech.cassidy.org. And we will include all of those links in the show notes that you can find at edtechsr.com, where we will have small 32-kilobit audio versions of tonight's show, as well as a 240p, which means relatively small, about a 200 meg video download that you can get from the Amazon cloud. And you can also, of course, follow us on YouTube, subscribe to our channel, and you can follow us not only on Twitter at EdTechSR, but also now, we've had it for a while, but our Facebook page, which is getting the live stream that we have just been recording tonight. So we want to wish everyone a happy Halloween. We hope you're going to stay warm. The cold weather has certainly come to Montana. What is your low temperature, Jason, just to give us a ball? Oh, I think tonight we'll probably be down to 10 or 15. I will check this for sure to be accurate. Uh, it's 20 degrees right now. Oh, never mind. It's going to get down to zero tonight. Zero degrees Fahrenheit. And we, uh, yeah, we were uh, hitting the, the uh, freezing mark, freezing warnings for the first time here in Oklahoma. So until next time, we encourage you to stay Stay savvy, stay safe, and uh, reach out to Jason on social media. Encourage him to make the jump to the Apple universe.